Spring practice is a perfect time of year to experiment with your football team, but in Arizona State's case, the newness of the schemes we saw in practice were not based on any new ideas the coaches devised in the offseason, wanting to change things up from last year, but rather a significant change in philosophy on both sides of the ball that came as a result of a massive coaching change. How have those changes been received as we arrived at the midpoint of spring practice? In this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast, we'll break down position by position our observations of the Sun Devils and what we can expect to see the rest of spring practices. Later on in the podcast, we'll discuss Arizona State's basketball postseason prospects as the Sun Devils halt a three-game skid, ending the regular season with a win over Washington State, and more importantly, heading into the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas as a top-four finisher for the second year in a row. Can Arizona State take that next step and actually make some noise in both the Pac-12 and the NCAA tournament? We'll delve into those topics as well. So as you can tell by now, there's no spring break for yours truly. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get right to it. I was living in a devil town I didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And as mentioned in the intro, this spring practice definitely carried more intrigue than your usual one, just because there have been so many assistant coaching changes on both sides of the ball, some of them even taking place a mere two, three weeks before spring practice actually started. So myself, and I'm sure I speak for all ASU fans, are really curious how the schematic changes, both on offense and defense, would take shape in spring practice. So let's start with the offense. And I think I'll start actually with a quote from co-defensive coordinator Antonio Pierce, who said that new offensive coordinator Zach Hill, who came from Boise State, a hire that Antonio Pierce definitely had a big stamp of approval in, if not the person that initiated it, just because Antonio Pierce's son, DeAndre, as some may know, uh, used to play for Boise State. So Pierce was very, very familiar with the Broncos and their success on offense. And I made the comment when Zach Hill was hired that it seems like anytime you talked about an innovative, cutting edge, out of the box offense in college football, Boise State is one of the first programs you would point to that would really would fit that description. It doesn't matter if it was Zach Hill or the several offensive coordinators that preceded him. And I would even go back to former Arizona State head coach Dirk Cutter, who came from Boise State. And granted, Cutter's 10P tenure was any anything but smooth sailing, but one can admit that he definitely had one of the better offenses we've seen this century at, at Sun Devil Stadium. So that really is just one more proof that the type of offenses they run up there in Boise, Idaho, uh, are definitely quite explosive, uh, really ignite the imagination, very pleasing to the eye. And bringing somebody like Zach Hill is definitely with that purpose to, in my opinion, really jumpstart an offense that was very, very stagnant, I felt, in the last year or two. And from what we saw in spring practice, it's definitely going to be an offense that's that's going to keep the defense on its toes. I mean, any player or coach from the other side of the ball talked about how challenging it is to deal with a Zach Hill scheme with all the shifts, all the motions, really expecting the unexpected, if you will. And we definitely saw quite a bit of that 
in the first seven sessions of spring. And when you look at the quarterback position, obviously you have Jaden Daniel as the entrenched starter. Nobody expected anything else to come out of a, of spring practice when it comes when it comes to that regard. But one thing that has been surprising concerning the quarterback position, specific Jaden Daniels, is the high number of interceptions that he has thrown in the first seven practices. I would say actually six to be exact because he did have to miss the opening session of spring practice due to class. But nonetheless, there definitely has been a natural adjustment, but nonetheless an adjustment process that Jaden Daniels had to go through just absorbing a brand new scheme that is so different than what he was employing as a true freshman in 2019. And that sometime has caused some confusion between him and wide receivers being on the same page. I also think the fact that he's dealing now with a four-man defensive front, and we'll talk about that a little later on, that maybe there also is some learning curve associated with that. But I think more than anything, this offensive scheme by Zach Hill is one that allows wide receivers to have a little more freedom and not be locked in their respective routes, but actually start running a route, read a defense, read a coverage, and adjust the route accordingly. And that is an acclimation process that both Jenny Daniels and his wide receivers are going through. Nonetheless, when we talk about the fact that all the wide receivers on this team, not named Frank Darby, definitely have a great deal of inexperience of their own to contend with. So it's one thing when you have a bunch of upperclassmen wide receivers that true, they still need to adjust to a new system. But because there's probably been a lot of been there, done that element of their game just by virtue of their sheer experience, those players can adapt much quicker to anything that's thrown at them, even if it's quite the departure from a scheme that was employed in 2019. But now when you deal with a large number of wide receivers and a quarterback as talented as he is, still underclassmen, all trying to absorb this Zach Hill offense in a quick manner, that is something that's definitely easier said than done. So we definitely saw some growing pains, but we definitely seen some positive elements. So let's get back to the quarterback position itself. We talked about Jaden Daniels and what we've seen from him in the first seven spring practices. So when you probably look at the depth chart of the quarterback position, the only intrigue here was who was going to be Jaden Daniels' backup in spring practice. Now, we all thought it was going to be Ethan Long because he was literally the last man standing in terms of scholarship quarterbacks returning to the team after the departures of Joey Yellen and Dylan Sterling Cole. And sure enough, Ethan Long did begin in that number two quarterback role, going back to the first spring practice where Jaden Daniels could not attend because he had class. Ethan Long was the one running the first team. But as practices progressed, Trent Bourget, the walk-on locally here from Marana, Arizona, did emerge as the number two quarterback for Jaden Daniels. Quite frankly, he played much better than Ethan Long in that role. And Ethan Long was transitioned more to that H-back slot wide receiver role that we did see him play at times in 2019 when Joey Yellen 
was the true backup quarterback to Jaden Daniels. So it's kind of funny how that process, at least for Ethan Log, did come full circle. Now, just when we got comfortable, if you will, if Trent Bourget being a walk-on, being the backup quarterback to Jaden Daniels, here comes Jack Smith, the former quarterback for Arizona State, who had to retire due to medical reasons. Jack Smith, son, by the way, of Tracy Smith, Arizona State's head baseball coach. The few practices that he has had under his belt right before spring break may actually lead to him being the number two quarterback over Trent Bourget. So definitely interesting storyline to follow once the team does return to practices after spring break. Can Jack Smith really coming out of nowhere? Somebody who everybody thought may have ended his football career due to his back injury. Can he come right now and be the true backup for Jaden Daniels, not only right now in spring practice, but when the season starts? As we know, true freshman Dalen McLemore will arrive here in the summer. Asking him to be the backup quarterback to Jaden Daniels may be a tall task for a true freshman. And now Jack Smith maybe provides that insurance for you that McLemore does not have to be thrusted into action as a number two signal caller. You can have somebody who at least has a greater deal of experience under his own respective belt and allow McLemore really to develop at his own pace without the pressures of being a number two quarterback. So it seems as if every spring practice does bring certain players out of the shadows, for lack of a better term, really shine on that stage. A lot of names that you probably did not expect, but there's no doubt in my mind that a name you truly did not expect to read about and hear about in spring practice is quarterback Jack Smith. So really impressive to see him after a lengthy hiatus really hit, hit, hit the ground running and put himself in serious contention to be the backup to Jaden Dan. So moving to the running back position and when we talk about inexperience at the quarterback role and really in a lot of other roles we'll discuss later on on this side of the ball, running back is uh, definitely not immune to that trend. There were high expectations from the two freshman running backs, Diamante Tranium and Daniel Nada, to both establish themselves early on in the spring as the feature running backs. And I think for the most part, they definitely have done that. Probably more in Tranium's case than Nada's case, but nonetheless, you could definitely tell the sheer talent, albeit raw talent, that Arizona State has right now at that running back position. Both Zach Hill and running backs coach Sean Aguano made it crystal clear that this is going to be a running back by committee approach in 2020. There's not going to be a workhorse approach that we've seen with, you know, Benjamin, not only in 2019, but really 2018 for that matter. A, I don't think that such a running back that is ready to assume that volume of duties exists on the roster to begin with. But more importantly, it's really an approach, a line of thinking that can benefit you in the long run when you do spread the wealth among your running backs. You decrease the wear and tear on each of them and also present different looks to opposing defenses. There's been a lot of talk. I'm sure you've heard it by now of uh, a guy like Tranium being the Thunder and a guy like Nada being the Lightning, that change of pace, and Arizona State really utilizing the very unique skill sets each of those running backs have 
And that is something that we've seen somewhat take place in spring practice. Although I think Tranium, compared to other running backs on the roster, is receiving the majority of the carries. And it would be hardly an outlandish prediction to make right now that the first running back to touch the ball in this 2020 season opener is going to be Diamante Tranium. He is everything that we expected to see and more. Uh, Somebody who balances his sheer physicality with a good deal of athleticism. And granted, most of the sessions have been without pads. And to me, it's really hard to judge the true capability of a running back or even an offensive and defensive line for that matter when before the pads come on. But once they came on, Diamante Tranium has shown that he is one young running back with loads of potential that has barely scratched the surface. But when it comes to the running back position, I don't think it's been all about the true freshman. I think the two returning scholarship players, A.J. Carter and Demetrius Flowers, have definitely showed some flashes in their own right. If you recall in the Sun Bowl game to end the 2019 season, while A.J. Carter maybe didn't have the main responsibility of carrying the ball as you know, Benjamin set out that postseason contest to get prepared for the NFL draft. It actually was outgoing senior wide receiver Kyle Williams. AJ Carter definitely got some ample opportunities. And he did fumble the ball twice in that contest. And that was at least believed to have the potential of being a lingering hangover going into spring practice. But when we talked to Sean Aguano uh, right before the team went on spring break, uh, he felt that A.J. Carter is a player that has done well. Aguano did admit that he was worried about Carter and having that so-called hangover after the Sun Bowl and how that could adversely affect him in spring practice. But he felt that he has bounced back uh, pretty well. And he feels that he's uh, in the hunt, so to speak, with the other running backs to really get his fair share of snaps with, with this running back by committee approach. And really under the radar, I think I've been maybe as impressed with Demetrius Flowers as I was with any other running back I've seen so far in spring practice, just because that the fact that Flowers did have to miss the first few sessions due to personal reasons. But once he put the pads on, I felt that he was really looking quite formidable in the limited number of snaps he was getting. Now, if I had to build any kind of depth chart after the first seven spring practices, yes, I probably would put Flowers at the bottom of that depth chart and probably make it train them and then Nada slash Carter and then Flowers coming at the end of that list. But nonetheless, I don't think that Flowers is behind the eight ball by any means. And while it may be one of the less talked about storylines for the next seven spring practices, I am very curious to see if Flowers can improve his niche in the depth chart when spring practice comes to an end because ultimately he is battling inexperienced running backs just like himself. Moving to the wide receiver group and a name that I mentioned in last week's podcast as far as one of the early standouts on offense, really on the entire team, is wide receiver Brandon Pierce, who was last year a junior college transfer that just really got lost in the mix, never was able to establish himself in the two deep. But in spring practice, he has definitely been all the rage at this role. Uh, Zach Kill, when he addressed the media, talked about 
appears being fiery, having a little spark to him. And he somebody has been very, very impressive with so far in practice. We wrote a great article about uh, Brandon Pierce. If you just do a search on Brandon Pierce, Devil's Digest in Google, uh, you'll see his life story, which is very similar to so many players on the team uh, growing up under adverse conditions in inner city Los Angeles and how he was able to rise above those conditions, actually could have gone to the University of Oklahoma over Arizona State, but that was delayed his enrollment and he decided to enter a better and new environment as quickly as possible. Arizona State was the place for him due to those unique circumstances. And again, even though he hasn't done much at all to write home about in 2019, 2020 could be a whole different story for Brandon Pierce. Granted, there's still some good talent coming back and more importantly, a lot of new talent arriving in the summer. But Brandon Pierce, I think when it's all said and done, can be somebody who can hold off the new and the future competition at wide receiver and somebody who I'm not saying would be one that can truly replace what Brandon Ayuk has been to this team and his production level, but definitely somebody that's going to be a significant contributor at this role for the Sun Devils. When I look at at the returning wide receivers aside from Pierce, I think the only one that truly stand out that stands out, I'm sorry, is is Ricky Paracel, who's, who, as you know, did prep locally here, right down the road from the Arizona State campus at Tempe Corona del Sol. Somebody was really lightly recruited out of high school just because of the tough seasons the Aztecs were having in the last couple of years, and some were kind of wondering why uh, Paracel was somebody who Arizona State was pursuing. And even though it's a different offensive coordinator, different wide receivers coach at the time that was courting uh, Paracel, you could tell by some of the flashes that he displayed in 2019, but more importantly right now in spring practice, that he is definitely a legitimate Pac-12 player, does play a lot uh, in the slot, and obviously with the departure of Kyle Williams, that is a role that needs to be filled and filled effectively for the Arizona State offense, wants it, and Ricky Paracel just might be the answer right there. So Brandon Pierce or Ricky Paracel are the two players that I have been impressed the most at, at wide receiver. Pierce being a legitimate downfield uh, threat who, along with Frank Darby, I think can really stretch defenses when the 2020 season begins. Uh, Frank Darby, by the way, did miss a few sessions due to injury, so really haven't been able to see a whole lot from him in the first half of spring practice. Uh, I would be disappointed, if not flat-out surprised, if he was very quiet in the second half of spring practices. So that's another thing you want to look at on this side of the ball. But uh, but, but Ricky Paracel, not really replacing Frank Darby, I would say, just playing a different role altogether. But somebody who definitely displays a high level of football IQ out there. And that's not to take anything away from his athleticism and ability to separate from defenders. So those are two wide receivers that stood out the most to me. Uh, We'll see if they can keep it up in the last seven sessions, and we'll see if any of the players that may have had some quiet practices uh, so far can really emerge uh, between now and the end of March. Did want to note uh, that one newcomer that could arrive in the middle 
of spring practices is Johnny Wilson. Uh, he has been working on getting his all academics in order. And I'm not sure if I mentioned it only exclusively to my customers in the huddle or also in the podcast here as well. But Johnny Wilson was, as you know, slated to go to the University of Oregon, which unlike Arizona State is on a quarter and not a semester system. So his academic path, if you will, was geared towards him arriving in time for Oregon's beginning of spring practice, which coincides with the beginning of their quarter in the academic calendar. But just because he switches allegiance from the Ducks to the Sun Devils, now his academic calendar in terms of graduating from high school has been accelerated. He wasn't able to complete everything in time for him to arrive at the beginning of the spring semester in Tempe, but he does have a chance and we'll probably get an answer here in the next week or two if he's able to arrive in time for spring practice for Arizona State as they resume practices after spring break on the week of March 16th. If Wilson is able to join practices, really curious to see how he can hit the ground running or does he go through such a vicious learning curve, which is obviously not foreign to true freshmen like himself and ends up having a very quiet spring practice. So be interesting to see how that storyline does develop. I'll touch briefly on the tight ends just because there really haven't been that many scholarship players to begin with to discuss. Curtis Hodges, the senior, has had somewhat of a revival, I would say, after three very unassuming seasons for the Sun Devils. You're starting to see signs that maybe, just maybe, he can be an integral part of Arizona State's passing game of the Zach Hill offensive scheme that does want to involve the tight ends quite a bit. I'm not here to suggest that he has had clean sessions each and every day for the last couple of weeks, but in terms of just overall performance, we're probably seeing the best right now that we have ever seen from Curtis Hodges. Can he keep it up for the, for the last seven spring practices? Uh, that is something you definitely want to track. And Nolan Matthews, the sophomore uh, tight end, maybe somebody a lot of people thought that would easily garner more playing time over Curtis Hodges at the tight end role. We haven't seen it so far. I don't think that Nolan Matthews is necessarily having a horrible spring practice. It's just that Curtis Hodges is able to stand out just a little more than him. Does that pecking order get reversed for the, for the next couple of weeks? I wouldn't be surprised if it did happen. But uh, for now, Curtis Hodges has been one of the more impressive, if not feel-good stories of spring practice, especially on off. And we'll wrap up our conversation on the ASU offense and their performance in spring practice, discussing the offensive line. Uh, starting at left tackle, uh, Kellen Deesh, the graduate transfer from Texas A&M, I think by and large has been everything that we expected him to be, bringing a lot of experience, obviously bringing sheer size, 6'6", 300, something that is definitely not commonplace at left tackle in Tempe. I don't think that pass protection and run blocking have been glaring deficiencies by any means for Arizona State in the first seven sessions of spring practice, and Kellen Deesh is definitely a big reason for that. Lining up right next to him at left guard is Jared Bell, and this is just an interesting story to see an offensive lineman that definitely came more heralded than a lot of the offensive linemen in his class and even the class that followed him, but he really has not been able to 
quickly established himself, just like two true freshmen last year in Donovan West and Ladarius Henderson. If you recall, Jared Bell actually started the 2019 season playing right guard as Donovan West played center. And later on, Donovan West uh, did move to right guard and basically putting Jared Bell in in a reserve role. Now, if we're being 100% honest over here, the reason Jared Bell is starting these days in spring practice at left guard is basically because the arrival of Henry Hattis, the grad transfer from Stanford, is not going to take place until the summer. So in a sense, he is keeping Henry Hattis' seat warm at left guard. But much like the wide receiver group for Arizona State, I think he is one player on the offensive line that stands a great opportunity to give his coaches a lot to think about as they're expecting probably a newcomer to assume his starting role, but his performance at spring practice may have the chance to change the thinking of the coaching staff. So far, I think he's played pretty well. Can he elevate his performance to truly make a legitimate case for him to be a starter once the 2020 season begins? That remains to be seen. We just talked a minute ago about a true freshman starting at center for Arizona State when the 2019 season began. And sure enough, when the 2020 season kicks off, we might see another underclassman, a redshirt freshman to be exact, Ben Scott, start at center for Arizona State. Ben Scott is someone who I think I discussed in previous podcasts as being one of the promising offensive linemen on the team, did win the scout MVP award at the team banquet and has just, even during the redshirt year, been one player that the offensive coaching staff has been really, really excited about. Arizona State obviously in a tough position where they, as we speak, still waiting word from Kate Cote, the center who was supposed to be the starter in 2019, did suffer, if you recall, a broken foot just days before the season opener did end up sitting out most of the 2019 season, played very sparingly, did submit an appeal to the NCAA to gain that six-year eligibility, which would allow him to be the starting center for Arizona State this season. As we sit here right now and record the podcast, we have not heard any word about his status or what the chances of his appeal being accepted or being denied. So Arizona State obviously could not have Kate Cote practice. There was really no logical reason to do that anyway. And I think it's something that the NCAA, as it is, would frown upon. With Ben Scott right now assuming the duties, then the microscope is definitely on the redshirt freshman as talented as he is. Assuming such a crucial role on the offensive line, how would he fare? So far, I don't feel that bad snaps have been in issues. Again, we just look at the overall abilities to pass protect and run block. I think Ben Scott has performed well in those areas too. He's someone that is justifying a lot of the praise that he got in 2019, albeit as a player redshirting, and could actually do a pretty good job of anchoring the Arizona State offensive line. Needless to say, it's not ideal to have an underclassman be the anchor of this offensive line, call out protections and whatnot, but 
That's uh, the card that Arizona State has been dealt, uh, mainly because of subpar recruiting in previous staffs. And here we are having a very good chance seeing another freshman, this time a redshirt freshman, be the starter in the season opener for Arizona State at center. Pretty unique, uh, if not amazing, circumstances. And we'll see how that all unfolds in terms of the effectiveness and performance of the front five for ASU. I don't know if I would call Donovan West and Ladarius Henderson, who are entering their sophomore season in 2020, as seasoned veterans, but obviously two underclassmen that played a ton of games in the 2019 campaign for the Sun Devils. And now they are the mainstays at the right side of the offensive line. Ladarius Henderson making the move from left tackle to right tackle because of the arrival of Kellen Deesh. And I thought Henderson was very candid when he talked to reporters about the struggles that he's having as a young player. Somebody who, if you recall, the stories we wrote about him when he was getting recruited by Arizona State hasn't played organized football for more than just two, three years. And making that shift from left tackle to right tackle has definitely been a challenge for somebody that simply does not have a lot of football experience, period, to show. And I don't know if those struggles really manifested themselves in any kind of gross way, if you will, in spring practice. But again, Henderson was very candid about the learning curve that, that, that he's going through. I don't know if Arizona State really has any viable solution to replace him at starting right tackle. If it did come to that, and I don't think we're at that stage by any means, but that is something that is definitely worth following the rest of spring practice. Can Ladarius Henderson really settle into that right tackle after exclusively playing left tackle, not only last year for the Sun Devils, but really for his entire, I should say, short high school career. And a left guard, uh, you have Donovan West, a player that really shined as a freshman in that role, was the highest graded offensive lineman literally for the entire 2019 season for Arizona State. Still performing at a high level here in spring practice. Definitely one of the more dependable starting linemen that Arizona State uh, has right now. He's somebody that maybe compared to Henderson, you probably have higher expectations and more optimism going into the 2020 season. But again, I wouldn't really give up on Henderson, so to speak, as far as what he can contribute uh, to, to this offensive line. But it's by and large a group that right now has four underclassmen on the first team. More than likely, it's going to have three when Haddis replaces Bell when fall camp starts. Nonetheless, still pretty young, still pretty experienced front fire for Arizona State. How much effect does that have in full camp, let alone in this upcoming season, definitely remains to be seen. It is definitely a group that is still going to have to pass protect for a young quarterback, is going to have to run block for a lot of young, inexperienced running backs. It goes without saying, it is imperative for this front five, as young as they may be, as green as they may be, to really be a rock for this entire offense so this side of the ball can utilize what is a very innovative and creative scheme by Zach Hill to be more of a force 
for Arizona State in 2020. So now that we covered all the positions on offense, let's move on to the defense and our evaluation of that side of the ball after the first seven spring practices. For the first couple of weeks of spring practice, if you have read any of my tweets, let alone our practice reports, you've probably noticed, and really it's been impossible not to notice, that we've been singing the praises of first-year defensive line coach Robert Rodriguez, who was an assistant defensive line coach for the Minnesota Vikings for the last couple of years. He came into Tempe replacing Jamar Kane, who left for the University of Oklahoma to assume the same role. Anytime you try to replace an assistant coach this late in the calendar year, it's not an easy task at all, but there's no doubt in my mind, and I think this is as much a consensus opinion as it can be among folks who follow the program, that Robert Rodriguez has been an absolute home run hire. Co-defensive coordinator Antonio Pierce went as far as calling him the MVP of spring practice, so not even naming a player as somebody who stood out so far, but rather an assistant coach, let alone a first-year assistant coach. When you talk about the pro model that Arizona State is trying to build, getting another coach from the NFL ranks was huge. He is so much more than just one more coach that has NFL background to his resume. Just the fact that he is so meticulous in his teachings, somebody we can just tell knows exactly which buttons to push. Someone who illustrates through his drills, telling his players, hey, this is how it's done in the NFL. I got to believe that these defensive players, as much as they may have loved Jamar Kane in 2019, are having a great deal of appreciation for Robert Rodriguez and what he's bringing to the table. The most profound quote that I heard from any ASU player in any of my 20 years covering the team was defensive lineman Amiri Johnson, the retro freshman, somebody who put on 50 pounds of muscle, looks more like an elk than a Bambi, as Antonio Pierce so elegantly described the other day. But aside from Amiri Johnson's physical transformation, his mental transformation, if you will, playing this position has been tremendous. And it probably he speaks for a lot of his teammates saying, to reporters that he actually wakes up in the morning excited to be coached about Robert Rodriguez just because of Rodriguez's personality, because of his know-how from his NFL background. That quote to me says a lot about what kind of impact Rodriguez has made in such a short period of time for a position that is just begging for improvement. And look, I don't mean to belittle the job that Jamar Kane has done over here. I think he dealt with really tough circumstances that maybe in some respect Robert Rodriguez does not have to deal just because he has more bodies. Most of the bodies that Rodriguez does does have at his disposal now have a little more experience, have a little more know-how in comparison. This is a position that has to elevate his performance, not only more than any position on defense, but probably any other position on the team, period. And with Robert Rodriguez, I think there is a good level of healthy optimism, which I would don't think is naive optimism by any means, that this defensive line can get over a hump, 
and really can produce at the level that it needs to perform at to really take this entire defense to the next level and really enhance the strengths of this defense, which is a very formidable group of linebackers and defensive backs. Robert Rodriguez, in my eyes, in my opinion, can definitely be the man for that job. Now, I've discussed on this podcast and also my various analysis pieces throughout the 2019 season that pass rush for Arizona State has been a big issue. And because of that aspect, it wasn't surprising to see Arizona State once defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez left Tempe to become the head coach at at the University of New Mexico for ASU wanting to move away from the 3-3-5 scheme just because that's a scheme that by nature does not always allow adequate pass rush to take place. And with Arizona State's personnel, maybe that scheme wasn't the best suited for it just because you have to have absolute three studs up front effectively occupying gaps and really letting the linebackers to operate with a high degree of efficiency behind them. When Gonzalez first arrived here in 2018, there wasn't the talent nor the experience, especially at the defensive line, at the linebacker for Arizona State to really flourish, to really hit on all cylinders when it came to playing in the 3-3-5 scheme. So Arizona State had modest success on defense in 2018 and 2019. I want to make it crystal clear that I don't think Arizona State won seven and eight games in those campaigns despite the defense. If anything else, I think the defense in many cases did carry the team when the offense was average at best in both seasons. So this is not a knock on Danny Gonzalez. It's not a knock on the defenses that were employed in those two seasons. But when pass rush became such a glaring deficiency for Arizona State in 2019, and I would say maybe not as much as the offense, but definitely that specific factor on the team was holding back the Sun Devils from achieving a greater deal of success. Arizona State was really forced to move to a more traditional 4-3 front. When we knew that change uh, was coming, even if Tony White, the defensive coordinator for just about a month and a half in Tempe, was going to be in place, let alone when he left to assume the same role at Syracuse, we knew that that 4-3-4 was here to stay for Arizona State. It wasn't just a look that we saw quite a bit of in the Sun Bowl in a victory over Florida State. What have we seen in spring practice when it came to this new four-man front? Well, I think that the performance that we saw from the interior linemen, namely DJ Davidson at nose tackle, Jermaine Lole at three technique, Stefan Wright backing up Jermaine Lole at the three technique. Those are the players and the positions that really have impressed more in terms of the defensive ends. Uh, Michael Matus and Shannon Foreman are the players who were normally running on the first team. Uh, Stanley Lambert, who came at Arizona State as a linebacker, if you recall, Cole suffered a devastating knee injury preparing for the Las Vegas Bowl in 2018, pretty much tore every possible ligament in his knee, had a long recovery process ahead of him. But now in spring practice, he's healthy. And being a 
a 6'4 freak linebacker is now just becoming a traditional 6'4 defensive end. Amiri Johnson, we mentioned a few minutes ago, lining up at other defensive end. So those players, I think, have been fairly pedestrian to begin spring practice. Now, again, we're talking about a new scheme and these are all, for the most part, younger players, like, except Foreman. So there's a lot of adjustment to go through. And even Foreman himself, when he was talking during spring practice, being somebody who lined up in the interior quite a bit during his Arizona State tenure is also almost on the same footing, if you will, of the underclassmen that are trying to play the defensive end at a, at a high level. So that's definitely still work in progress. So I can't see we've seen this pass rush for Arizona State be light years ahead of 2019. Now, do we see some signs that could lead us to believe that this is what we should expect from that specific group of the defensive line? Uh, That is one huge question mark that the Arizona State coaches hope that is answered successfully and one that can absolutely shape the entire outlook of the ASU defense coming out of spring practice. Moving on to linebacker, and we really haven't seen a whole lot from the two players that Arizona State would depend on the most at this role and for very differing reasons. Uh, Merlin Robinson suffered a family tragedy where his dad unexpectedly passed away, so he missed a lot of sessions due to that family situation. Uh, Darren Butler has been limited the last few practices due to an injury. So that really shined the light that much brighter on the more inexperienced linebackers, some of the newcomers as well. Elijah Juarez and Jordan Banks are the two linebackers that are standing out over here. But I think overall, just because of the absences of both Robertson and Butler, again, for much, much different reasons each and for different periods of time. I don't know if we can get really a true read on this linebacker position, but we know for a fact that Antonio Pierce, who also serves as a linebacker's coach, definitely has high expectations of this group. I think that a linebacker starting three of Darian Butler, Merlin Robinson, and Jordan Banks may be the group that we do see line up in the season opener. And I would definitely put that linebacker group in terms of raw talent up there with any linebacker group that we've seen in Arizona State this century. Maybe the closest degree of talent that comes to mind is a linebacker group that we saw over here some, I would say, what, 12 or so years ago with Vontaze Burfecht, Brandon McGee, and Shelly Lyons. I think it can be that good of a linebacker group for the Sun Devils. But, you know, we've seen flashes from other players like Kyle Soley. So I think the depth at linebacker is pretty good. Probably needs to get better, and maybe we're a good recruiting class or two from that specific aspect improving. But uh, linebackers is a group that has a lot of promise. Again, due to different circumstances, we probably haven't seen the full potential of that group in spring practice. Uh, Still some time for the last seven sessions for this group to be the dominant unit we all expect it uh, to be. We just haven't seen a whole lot of it right now for the last couple of weeks. And lastly, just discussing the defensive backs. And if you recall at the beginning of our podcast, we started talking about the offense and the higher than normal 
number of miscues that Jaden Daniels and the other quarterbacks for that matter uh, have been exhibiting, trying to get used to the new Zach Hill offense. This group of safeties and cornerbacks have absolutely been the beneficiaries of this learning curve by the offense. And I also think just by their own right, being the seasoned players that they are, are performing at the level we all expected them to, to be. I mean, this is a group that has really nothing but upperclassmen in starting roles. Two seniors starting at cornerback, Chase Lucas, who is entering his fourth year as a starting quarterback for Arizona State, uh, something that is definitely unheard of, not only with the Sun Devils, but really with a lot of programs in the Pac-12, if not nationwide. Jack Jones, now without going senior, Kobe Williams no longer on the team, gets to assume a starting role, I think has had a very strong start to spring practice with multiple interceptions. And he's somebody that obviously played at a pretty high level uh, last year, uh, had double digits uh, pass breakups for Arizona State. So not surprised to see him uh, come, come off to such a strong start in spring. And now that he is going to be a full-time starter rather than a part-time one or just a reserve that gets to see dozens and dozens of snaps each week, I think we can definitely see the Jack Jones, the five-star prospect out of Long Beach Poly that we all expected to see and perform at a very high level each and every Saturday. This is definitely shaping up, in my opinion, to be a huge 2020 season for Jack Jones. And then at the two safety spots, we talked in a previous podcast and also in many articles and discussions on Devil's Digest how Arizona State was going to adjust to the two safety rather than the three safety look. How is somebody like Evan Fields stop playing the uh, Tillman safety center fielder role, if you will, in the middle of this defensive back group and being more traditional uh, strong safety, Ashari Croswell being a true free safety, that, and in his case, not really much of a departure from 2019. Uh, I think that both have exhibited uh, that they can play very, very well in this four defensive back alignment. Just like I'm expecting big things from both Chase Lucas and Jack Jones at cornerback, also from the safety group, uh, this should be one of the better seasons we've seen in a while from that specific role and really from the whole defensive back unit for that matter. You look at passing defense in Arizona State, I believe, finished the season around 105 nationally. In that category, uh, definitely evoking a lot of uh, unpleasant memories from 2015 and 16, where the Sun Devils ranked dead last in the country among FBS teams. I think a lot of that had to do with the lack of pass rush, but also this defensive back group definitely did not play up to its full capability in 2019. I expect it to be a whole different story in 2020. Stating the obvious, an improved pass rush is imperative for this defensive back to elevate its game, but I just feel that the overall talent and experience in this group is really going to shine, and we should not be seeing the same pass defense numbers that we've seen in 2019 this this upcoming season. This is a very, very strong group. Uh, some really good reserves and good nickelbacks that we've seen already emerge in spring practice as far as nickelbacks. Jordan Clark, T. Lee at Nickelbacks have played very, very well early on in spring. Uh, Kiwan Martin at at safety, uh, definitely one of the best reserve safeties, I think, in the entire Pac-12. So there's a lot of promise over here. Antonio Pierce said he doesn't expect any of the defensive backs 
whether the ones that are enrolled right now in school, the ones uh, arriving in the summer to redshirt. So this should be a very deep, a very talented group. Again, the pass defense ultimately is really going to dictate a lot of the fortunes of this unit, but I think that ASU fans have a reasonable expectation for this entire defense and especially the defensive back group to play at a much higher level than they did in 2019. So that was our in-depth analysis, position by position, of the Arizona State football team at the midway point of spring practice. Let's shift gears from the gridiron to the hardwood. Yes, it is almost that time of year. We're just under a week from Selection Sunday. Will we hear Arizona State's name called for the third year in a row, a feat that has not been achieved in Tempe since the early 60s? Well, I think Arizona State is in excellent position to achieve that feat. Let's talk about what happened this past weekend. Arizona State started their homestand with the Washington schools with a loss to Washington A loss that I don't want to sugarcoat by any means, but let's just say that Arizona State did run into one of the hottest teams right now in the Pac-12. And I know it's weird to say that about a team that is going into the conference tournament ranked dead last in 12th place in the conference. But it's also the same team that swept their Arizona road trip, beating the Wildcats 48 hours after they did beat Arizona State. So... This is definitely one team that I don't think anybody in this Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas wants to face. Ironically, Arizona and Washington will meet again just four days later in the first round of that tournament. But to Arizona State's credit, they did bounce back and did beat Washington State on Saturday by the score of 83-74. to Arizona State fell behind really early in the first half, was able to regroup and led as by many as 17 points in the second half, a lead that they saw evaporate as Washington State came to tie the score. But strong play down the stretch by the Sun Devils did secure the home split against Washington schools, did secure a 20-win season for the third year in a row, a feat that has not been achieved since 2010. So Arizona State finds itself in the top four, Going into the Pac-12 tournament, number three to be exact, this is the first back-to-back finish in the top four at the end of the regular season. Also a feat that has not been accomplished since 2010. So I think this is one common theme with a Bobby Hurley tenure, which I know in many regards has not been the smoothest of 10 years. Sun Devil fans, as much as they're excited to hear their beloved team's name called on Selection Sunday for the last two years would also like to have a lower anxiety level going into Selection Sunday. So now the big question is, where do Arizona State's postseason fortunes lie, both in the Pac-12 tournament and in the big dance, the NCAA tournament? So let's talk about the Pac-12 tournament. Now, I will preface 
my statement saying there are definitely no gimmies in this league, a league that has absolutely caramelized each other all season long. Arizona State earning that third place finish, still only had an 11 and 7 record in conference play. Not a horrible record, but a record that in many years past, you would actually expect to see a team maybe ranked fifth in the conference, for example, actually have that mark. But Arizona State, in my opinion, definitely got a more favorable side of the bracket. When I look at teams that I don't think the Sun Devils wanted any business of until the conference tournament finals to face, I look at teams like USC. I look at teams like Washington. Even though it's a down year for University of Arizona, I would still put them in in that category. Definitely Oregon, who won the regular season title in the Pac-12. Those are teams that you rather not see at all in the conference tournament, or again, if you must see them, see them in the conference tournament finals. And Arizona State is definitely able to avoid those predicaments, if you will. The Sun Devils begin Pac-12 tournament play Thursday, 8.30 in the evening, facing the winner of Colorado and Washington State. Washington State, the same team that they just beat this this past Saturday. Not saying it's an easy out, but would I take that team over Washington, over USC? In a heartbeat. The other team, Colorado, is the only team that Arizona State has not beaten in the Pac-12. If you recall, they also lost a non-conference game to Colorado, which was the season opener in Shanghai, China. But I think it's very, very hard for any team to beat an opponent three times in the same season. It's no secret that Colorado is not entering this Pac-12 tournament on a high note to say the least. They played themselves out of a top four finish, losing on the road in overtime to Utah, a game that marked their fourth consecutive loss. So it wouldn't be outlandish to say that Colorado is definitely not entering with the best mindset into postseason play. Even if they did beat Washington State, they are still playing a fresher Arizona State team the next night. So that is one scenario which I think, compared to other other potential scenarios that could have been, does play quite nicely into ASU's hands. We look at the rest of the bracket. Stanford and Cal meet in the first round of the Pac-12 tournament. Both teams Arizona State beat, actually on the road. And the winner of that contest will face UCLA, a team that Arizona State did split the league series with. Arizona State handled UCLA quite easily in Tempe and lost at Pauley Pavilion on a a buzzer beater. So again, when you look at how Arizona State performed against that team compared to other teams in the other side of the bracket, you will definitely take your chances with UCLA or even if it came to that Stanford or Cal. I think that if there's any year where the Stars at least on paper, and I'll stress it again, at least on paper, a line in Arizona State's favor to capture their first ever Pac-12 tournament championship, this has to be the year. Because I think they're going to have winnable games in the quarterfinals and in the semifinals. And obviously the finals, it's anybody's guess who will survive that bracket of death if uh, to use a term from the uh, soccer World Cup lexicon, 
Oregon, USC, Washington, Arizona. There are definitely challenging contests right there, but maybe you, you end up facing in the finals a bruised and battered uh, team that Arizona State just might catch on an off day to win an improbable Pac-12 conference championship. Now, if you're saying, okay, hold, let's pump the brakes. Arizona State is not a team that has enjoyed much success at all in the Pac-12 tournament. Let's talk about more realistic scenarios and how it can or cannot impact their NCAA tournament chances. Okay, let's talk about that. As we're recording this podcast right now, I would say that the consensus seed for Arizona State in the NCAA tournament right here, right now, is the number 10 seed. It's a seed that doesn't give you a whole lot of margin of error to drop to number 11 and maybe even drop to number 11 that's going to have to play in that dreaded playing game in Dayton, the same playing game that Arizona State did encounter the last two years when it qualified to the NCAA tournament. And when I say play in, I should put that in parentheses because, again, for anybody else that's still doubting or questioning the fact, if you do play in Dayton, do you still be considered as an NCAA tournament team? Absolutely, yes. This is not my definition. This is not Arizona State's definition. That is the NCAA definition. So just because you happen to play in Dayton in the last four in category, you still are considered an NCAA tournament team. Yes, there will be skeptics and critics and naysayers with not-so-hidden agendas, which will want to put an asterisk against playing in Dayton. So for Arizona State, the goal is remove that asterisk. And even maybe as an 11 seed, not playing Dayton, be quote-unquote safely in the NCAA tournament, either starting play on Thursday or Friday rather than on Tuesday. So what, in my opinion, does Arizona State have to achieve in the Pac-12 tournament, aside from obviously winning the championship, which would guarantee an auto bid and, needless to say, guarantee anything but an 11 seed heading to Dayton, what does Arizona State need to achieve to get in the NCAA tournament and not play in the last four in and Dayton? In my opinion, a loss in the quarterfinals, whether it's to Washington State or whether it's to Colorado, would put Arizona State in the tournament, but better than a 50% chance would place them in Dayton in the last four in. I don't think that's too harsh of a prediction. I think it's a prediction that a lot of bracketologists would agree with me, and if they don't, so be it. But I don't think that any ASU fan should really go into Selection Sunday after a quarterfinal loss in the Pac-12 tournament feeling 100% good about their chances of being in the NCAA tournament, let alone being in the tournament and not playing in Dayton. I'm not saying that chances are Arizona State will not hear their name called on Selection Sunday, but there's definitely going to be some anxiety level going into that event. We always talk about this time of year about the bid stealers. And we already saw one with Utah State the other night in the Mountain West Conference. And it's a guarantee that you will see one, two, maybe three teams between now and Selection Sunday, whether they're playing in a major conference or playing in a mid-major conference, 
that will still bid, in other words, would never have qualified for the NCAA tournament unless they won their conference tournament, sometimes even beating a team that's considered a shoe-in to the field of 68, and by virtue of them unexpectedly winning a conference tournament, now can put teams like Arizona State, for example, in danger of either missing the NCAA tournament or basically locking them into that last four in category playing in Dayton. So that's what I think a quarterfinals loss in the Pac-12 tournament does for Arizona State. Now, winning the quarterfinals and losing the semifinals, whether it's the UCLA or Stanford or Cal, what does that do to Arizona State chances? I still would not sleep easy going into Selection Sunday, but maybe somewhat easier. Now, again, the huge caveat, the huge X factor, are we seeing other bid stealers, which I think we will, but how many of them are we going to see that may determine whether Arizona State in that scenario, losing in the semifinals of the Pac-12 tournament, do they get in safely or do they get in via Dayton? So that's that scenario. Last scenario, and again, I know there's a fourth one, Arizona State winning the Pac-12 championship. Again, we addressed that. What about the scenario of Arizona State qualifying for the Pac-12 tournament championship game, but losing in that contest? In that event, I expect Arizona State at worst to be a number 10 seed. Chances are Arizona State might have another quad one win en route to that Pac-12 tournament finals. And that, in my opinion, should take him off the 11 seed line, put him firmly in the 10 seed line, maybe depending on other events and other conferences, maybe they slip in to the nine seed line. But being a runner-up in the Pac-12 tournament championship game, I think Arizona State has nothing to worry about Selection Sunday. And yes, in that scenario... You can definitely sleep easy. You can definitely not worry about making any travel plans to Dayton. And that is obviously a scenario that would be a, a quite welcome change from the last two years. I think Arizona State can reach the Pac-12 tournament championship game. I think that the path that has been paid for them just by a virtue of them being the bracket that they are is a preferable path. Now, look, I'm sure that Colorado may think that way. I'm sure UCLA might think that way. And who knows if the other teams don't share that same vision as well. But Arizona State, with their very efficient guard play in recent weeks, with a pressure defense, which I think can mainly affect the teams with more tired legs that they are going to face in the Pac-12 tournament, does have a chance for the first time in a long time to make some noise in that in that conference tournament. And really, it would behoove them if they don't want to play in Dayton for a third in a row, if they want to rest easy going into Selection Sunday, win the quarterfinals, win the semifinals. Don't even put pressure on yourself that you have to win the finals of the conference tournament to know that you are definitely in the field 68. You're definitely not playing in Dayton. And hey, for a change, you're entering Selection Sunday with a big smile on your face. So that will do it for this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
as extensive as this podcast was, trust me, there's a lot more discussion going in the Devil's Huddle, our premium message board at devilsitis.com. If you're not a subscriber already, please subscribe, join our community, and you get to interact with me much more than just listening to a podcast. Lots of football, basketball news, both team news, recruiting uh, tidbits, uh, definitely some developments going on. Uh, in recruiting, especially with Arizona State basketball. So if you're a premium subscriber to devilsitis.com, you won't miss one iota of news the rest of the year. I'm headed to Las Vegas later on this week to cover the Pac-12 tournament. And our next podcast may just be from Las Vegas, but uh, definitely reaction to Selection Sunday. Did Arizona State hear its name called? Did it hear it called again to Dayton in about a week from now? We'll definitely know that, and I will be here in the podcast to break down all of that. Thanks again. Enjoy the rest of the week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.